My name is Liz McCarthy. I'm the managing attorney for immigration court legal orientation programs at Catholic Charities of Boston. And I might have to turn my camera off at some point, but you all don't care about seeing my face anyway. So um, I am going to do a um, little training on what this new rule is that we have regarding limited appearances and removal proceedings before EOIR. Then we'll have a little Q&A and we have some discussion questions. And this would be great if we could all discuss um, verbally together. But since that's not possible in this format, we really encourage you all to use that chat function, submit comments, really want to hear people's thoughts and questions on this rule, which really um, changes the practice in the immigration court. Okay. Okay, here we go. So an overview of what we're going to be talking about. Um, this is a new uh, regulation. It's, uh, this is the title, this is the, here's the site in uh, this CFR. Um, it's, what it does is it allows practitioners to provide limited legal assistance in proceedings before EUIR without having to become the official practitioner of record. So I'm sure many of you know, or all of you know, that there's, prior to this rule, there's really only two options uh, if you wanted to enter an appearance on behalf of someone that was either custody bond only or everything else. Um, and so this rule creates another avenue, another appearance where you can provide limited appearance without becoming the practitioner of record. Um, and it's basically a new form that you have to submit if you have provided document assistance to a pro se uh, respondent in removal proceedings. And you have to submit this form, which I'll go over the form. You have to submit this form with everything that you assist with, any document that you assist to prepare or um, you as a practitioner have to file this new form, but the rule does not apply to non-practitioners. It only applies to practitioners, which we'll go over the definition of who that is. Um, just a little background of how this regulation came to be starting way back in 2008, well, probably really, we're really getting into it probably longer ago than that, but um, there were some regulation changes in 2008 about um, rules regarding entering uh, an appearance and started with Northwest Immigrant Rights Project in Washington. Uh, they provide representation, but they also provide pro se assistance to individuals in removal proceedings. And so at that time, uh, when the regulations changed in 2008, they changed their practice so that if an attorney helps someone, a, a pro se respondent with you know, application, a pro se motion, they would sign their name. And that is how they felt that they were complying with the regulations. 2015, we had that is when that um, change occurred to separate uh, bond and custody proceedings out from the rest of removal proceedings. So that's when we had this first shift. Then in 2017, 
EOIR changes the interpretation of those rules. Um, I mean, I think, you know, can all know who was in charge at that time. Um, but they changed their interpretation and they send Northwest Immigrant Rights Project cease and desist letter saying they cannot provide this type of assistance to pro se respondents, that that's running afoul of the regulations and they either have to not assist people or take on the case for full representation and enter an appearance. In response to that, Northwest Immigrant Rights Project sued the Department of Justice, claiming that this uh, violates their constitutional rights to provide legal assistance to the community. There was a TRO, there was a preliminary injunction. In 2019, the parties reached a settlement agreement. And as part of that was that DOJ will promulgate, promulgate regulations allowing attorneys to engage in limited assistance to pro se respondents. And this would not be running afoul of the law. And so that is then what we got in 2002 or 2022, just last. September is when the rule was issued and it went into effect last November. So we're all subject to this rule now, and that is how it came to be. These are the Department of Justice's stated goals with this rule uh, to provide greater flexibility to practitioners, to be able to provide assistance um, to pro se respondents, uh, provide increased access to legal assistance uh, and and they state that basically they, they are hoping <laughs> this is this is a hope and an assumption um, that this rule will lead to a larger pool of practitioners and so then more people will be able to access legal services because practitioners will, be more available because they have more flexibility in um, providing assistance that is short of full representation. And they also um, believe that this is going to lead to a decrease in fraud in, you know, because the the pool of practitioners is getting increased, then then that necessarily will shrink the pool of of bad actors. Uh, or people taking advantage of bad actors uh, and and therefore decrease fraud. And the other rule is that they are, so that EOIR can make sure that practitioners are abiding by EOIR's rules of professional conduct by having more um, accountability for the things that they assist with, draft, et cetera. Okay, so when is this obligation triggered to submit this new form and enter a limited appearance. What determines that are these two questions. One, who you are. Are you a practitioner or a non-practitioner? And two, are you engaging in document assistance? And I'll go over what, what those both mean, but if yes to both those questions, then you are obligated to submit this new uh, limited appearance form. So who is a practitioner? We all pretty much know this, I'm sure. Um, an attorney who does not represent the government, 
or a representative. And um, there's a few different categories of who can be considered a representative, but obviously fully accredited DOJ representatives. Um, if it's a law student or law graduate, then the form needs to be filed by the supervising attorney or accredited representative supervising them. And then the other two, the reputable individual, accredited foreign government official, which are less common. Um, but those are who are considered practitioners. So all of us as attorneys are practitioners. What is document assistance? Okay, the drafting, completing, filling in a blank space is on a specific motion, brief, form, or other document to be filed with the immigration court or the BIA. So when we were planning this, there was a question, of, oh, can you list like the, the forms that this has to be filed with? And the answer is, there's no list of specific forms or motions that this has to be filed with, just any, any, any form, any motion, any brief, any document that you assist a respondent with, you have that is that is considered document assistance for the purposes of this rule. Just adding to what you're saying, Liz, that includes change of address, correct? And change of venues. It does. It does. And the Department of Justice has a FAQ document um, that fleshes out the rule a little bit more specifically. And one of the questions specifically addressed in that is even a change of address form, does this form, is this form required? And the answer is yes. If it is filled out, if the document assistance is provided by a practitioner, if it's, if it's a paralegal, if it's a non-practitioner, they don't have to, you know, and they're just doing a change of address form, they don't have to fill out this form because it, it doesn't impact them. Non-practitioners cannot fill out this form. Um, but as you'll see in a couple, couple slides, um, that doesn't mean that you can just have your paralegals do everything and um, not have to worry about this. Well, for many other reasons, but, um, but I'll uh, elaborate in a moment. Okay, this, this rule also um, changed, I believe, slightly the definitions of practice and preparation. And uh, also when this rule was going through the public comment period, originally the rule focused rather than are you a practitioner and are you completing document assistance? It focused more on, are you engaging in practice or are you engaging in preparation? And the comments um, were such that people found that really confusing and it was kind of a false, you know, kind of splitting hairs. And so anyway, so that's why the reg, it, it's not determinate whether you, are you doing practice, are you doing preparation? It's not determinate whether or not that this rule is going to be triggered. It's if you're engaging in, if you're a practitioner and you're engaging in document assistance. Um, but the definition of practice, they, you know, focus on the exercising of professional judgment, giving legal advice. Um, you know, they have these examples here, appearing on behalf of someone, providing legal advice, determining what forms uh, or relief someone uh you know, might be eligible for. Um, 
versus preparation, which is they define as only filling in black spaces on forms that and and no professional judgment is involved. Um, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about practice and preparation. Okay, <laughs> don't. This might look really overwhelming. I don't know, but this this helps helped me. I had to draw this out for myself. Helps me visualize. Okay, what are we talking about here with this role and practice preparation? Okay, so I probably should have made these all appear individually so that I don't know if I have a like a map. Oh, I have a map. Can you see my mouse? I don't know if I have a little. I need like a laser pointer. Um, okay, so let's. So here we got the practice. I love a Venn diagram. We got the practice, we got the preparation. And then what is in everything within the red circle is document assistance requiring the filing of this form. So let's see, something I wrote that is blocked by this bar. Oh, here we go. Okay. So something outside of all of these, it's not practice or preparation or document assistance is just, for example, if you're a practitioner reading a document reading a form to someone and translating it you know into their native language that you know wouldn't be considered practice or preparation or document assistance so uh you know translating a document orally for a respondent that is not going to trigger this rule okay what's something that's practice that is not going to trigger this rule that's over here, a consultation with a pro se individual, discussion of possible legal remedies, including legal advice. That does not require entering an appearance. That does, is not considered document assistance. It's practice, but it's not document assistance and does not trigger this rule. Okay, what... And then over here, we have preparation. Something that falls outside this rule that's preparation is a non-practitioner filling out the blank spaces on a form. And really, this whole, uh, this whole section here is, is non-practitioner conduct. So what would require the filing of this form? A practitioner drafting a motion using their legal judgment. Say you do a motion to reopen or a motion to change venue or, um, you know, you, you draft that for someone, you need to submit this form. Okay, over here, preparation. A practitioner filling out blank spaces on a form, for example, change of address form. Even if this is not practice, even if it does not involve your professional judgment, at all. You're literally just transcribing answers from a respondent. If you are a practitioner, this rule requires that you file this form. And then down here is, okay, say we had this, a non-practitioner filling out blank spaces on a form. Let's say that non-practitioner then gives it to the attorney that supervises them and the attorney reviews it. The attorney must file the E601 or a 60 or 61 with that document, even if they didn't actually work on it, they just reviewed it. So 
I wrote down here, not all practice triggers the rule, but all preparation does trigger the rule if it's done by a practitioner. And non-practitioners, as obvious, this is obvious, we all know this, non-practitioners can only engage in preparation um, to not run afoul of unauthorized practice of law. Okay. Are there any questions that have come in or anything? I thought I'd take a brief pause. Nothing yet on our chat or questions, but okay. all attendees can submit their questions and comments now. <laughs> One thing I uh, wanted to you know just pose, and you may get to this in a few minutes, Liz, but does this kind of, in your sense or in anyone else's sense, create like a perverse incentive for a practitioner to, you know, when they're delegating things to, you know, paralegals and, you know, support staff to just kind of let loose and just kind of wall themselves off so that they don't have to, you know, fill out annoying forms um, with every change of address. And so then it ends up kind of leading to less review of things when that's probably not the intention. I think that definitely could happen for sure. Um, they say that this form should only take six minutes to fill out. Um, but that can add up. <laughs> and also, I don't know. Um, oh, my camera, <laughs> camera's going weird. Um, stop video, okay. Yeah, um, that can really add up time-wise. Um, and yeah, but basically, you know, what the, what DOJ says in the regulations is, we feel that the burden, any kind of logistical burden that this is going to place on practitioners is, is worth it to achieve their stated goals. Now, will this achieve their stated goals? That's a discussion question we have. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that could be a result of this rule. Um, of course, that's not ideal because we don't want um, non-practitioners, you know, helping folks uh, with something and then it's riddled with errors. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, I would certainly think about possibly restructuring the workload um, of my practice if I do you know, a lot of pro se assistance. Obviously, this isn't this doesn't come into play if you are representing someone if you filed a full appearance. But um, yes, I think that's a good point. Okay, move on from here. But I can always come back to this Venn diagram <laughs> if it's a, if anybody else is a visual uh, understander like myself. I think okay. it's great, actually. I think you should spread it widely. Okay. <laughs> Well, it will be it will be spread uh, by the BBA. <laughs> um, okay, okay. So here is so this is the um, the sixty. I again, I can't. Say, is this a sixty? It's the oh, my my thing. That's the okay, sixty one, Liz. Okay. The immigration yes, this, court one. Okay, thank you. The sixty one. It goes to the immigration court. The 60 is for the BAA. They're pretty much identical. Um, this is what they look like. So you can see that you have to include 
the information of the assisted party, so the respondent's information and a number goes up top, and then you have to select what is the limited appearance for. Was it an application, a brief, a motion, other document? You have to describe it. Um, check off, you know, your, you know, include your bar, bar number and name. There is an attestation here, which I have on the next slide that you have to sign and then put your contact information. Um, there's also the service, um, the proof of service uh, here. And then, yeah, so that's that's the basics of the form. So this is the form that they say shouldn't take more than six minutes. Um, but this is it. Okay, so I just wanted to highlight, you know, pull out and highlight the petitioner practitioner attestation. Let's see if my video works again. Um, so this is what you have to, you know, sign and agree to when submitting this form. Uh, I hereby enter my limited appearance at the rest of, of the party named above. To me, is that is that is this going to be at the request of the party? Are they going to have really any any? I mean, I guess in certain, it's going to depend. I guess what the scenario is under which you're you're working with somebody. Um, if you're you have kind of a more formal, maybe I'm imagining a private practitioner, and you you know are working the same way that you would operate if you took it on for full representation, but you're only going to do the asylum application or you're only going to do a certain motion or something like that. Um, I could see how that could be. I, I am able to enter this limited appearance for you. And um, then that might be accurate that this is entering the limited appearance at the crest of the party named above. But a lot of times, you know, it's just going to be some extra thing that we have to do and we have to explain to the respondent what this form is and um you know it's yeah i don't know if that's necessarily completely accurate going to be completely accurate language um but the in the attestation it says it's it's obligating us as the petitioners filling out this form that we are we have the duty to explain to them the nature of the limited scope of the representation that we are not going to continue representing them. We are not going to come to their hearings. It's this is this is it. Um, so there weren't any additional requirements for like consent language or anything like that that the reg imposes because uh, to, to clarify the scope of the limited representation because they say, well, we took care of it here in the attestation and explains and you have to affirm that you have explained the scope to the respondent. Okay, um, just some other logistical considerations for filing. It cannot be filed as a standalone document. Um, that would be that would not that would be kind of no point because the whole point is that you're um you submit it with the document that you assisted with it has to accompany the filing at the time of the filing but if you you know are submitting a motion and an application for the same 
individual, you only have to submit one. You don't have to submit a different one for each motion or filing, only if you file them at different times. Like say I helped somebody with an asylum application and I filed this and then three weeks later I assist them with a motion to reopen. I have to do a new um, E61 that second time. It doesn't matter that I submitted one already when I helped them with the asylum application. It has to go um, with each document you assist with. And it cannot be filed electronically. And that has um, created some logistical difficulties. Um, Stopping my video again. Okay. Uh, Must be like everything. It has to be served with DHS along with the filing. And it can be um, served on DHS by the pro se respondent, or you can work it out with them that you are the one that serves uh, DHS by mail or in whichever way possible. Uh, Okay, this is an FYI. Some courts nationally have, if there have been instances where someone has entered, has submitted the form, the E61, and the court erroneously entered them as the practitioner of record. So just a good practice is if you submit one of these, just go in and check, (laughs) go in and check that you have not been named the practitioner of record for that individual um, that you helped submit this for. We also have uh, are aware of at least one instance of the Boston court rejecting the filing and rejecting the E61 because it was not filed electronically, which we know is not possible. That was like, I'm going to say a week or two after the reg went into effect. So I'm really hoping that um, the court, our court and just nationally, the courts are more aware, more familiar with this form, how they're supposed to process it. Um, so hopefully you will not run into any of those issues, but just things to note. Also, just, uh, you know, practitioners are still subject to EUR's rules of professional conduct. Um, the rule says that practitioners can be subject to discipline for repeatedly failing to enter the proper form. So you're not going to be supposedly subject to discipline for a, you know, one time failure to enter the limited appearance form. Uh, Also, you could be subjected to discipline if you are repeatedly drafting things that rely on boilerplate language and reflect no attention to the specifics of the case. And there was just a new ground for discipline created, which um, states that practitioners have to abide by rules and instructions on uh, signatures, signing documents. Um, Liz, can I interrupt you with a question that just came in? Yes, please. So there's a question that says, do the limited appearances appear in our EOIR portal? How else should we check whether we were erroneously named attorney of record? 
Well, they would appear in your portal if you are erroneously um, erroneously uh, listed as the as the practitioner of record. So that's what you would be checking for. They will not appear if you they should not appear if you just file this EOR 61. So if they're not there, then great. But I think you just want to keep your eye out that they don't they don't appear on your list. Um, and right, Liz, there's, I'm yeah. sorry, there's another related question about yes. um, erroneous uh, entry of appearance. Um, there's a question, is there a, a specific process to get you off of the, off the record, or is it just asking the clerk by going to court? Yeah, I would probably, I, I think you could probably email the court administrator. Um, that would probably be my recommendation, but if you just went to court, I'm sure, you know, the, the clerks would be able to assist you, but, um, I don't know if anybody has the court administrator's email address, uh, accessible easily that maybe could be dropped in the chat. Um, her name is Fang Shu. I, I can grab it, but not at this moment. I can, I can put it in. Sorry. Just one second. Okay. Wonderful. Um, okay. Okay. Discipline. Okay. So this is just kind of a overview of the differences between when we're talking about full representation and limited appearance. So we all know full representation, you have to file the E28. You must appear at all the hearings, you must file all documents and evidence, must accept service on behalf of the respondent. You're authorized to view the record of proceeding and you must file motion to withdraw or substitute if the representation ends before the final decision of the case. In contrast to the limited appearance for document assistance, you are not required to appear in court. And in fact, you cannot appear in court on behalf of the respondent because you are not the practitioner of record. Um, you could appear as friend of court. Um, the, the rule does state that this doesn't uh, impact anyone's ability to appear as friend of court. But of course, if you appear as friend of court, you can't um, you can't make any arguments on someone's behalf. It's really just kind of there to help the court and be a support person uh, to the respondent. So you could accompany them to court, uh, but you cannot appear on their behalf. You must file this limited representation form. Uh, I think another point in distinction there is also just the fact that you have to uh, you have to submit it multiple times potentially for the same respondent. Whereas in E28, you know, it's just the one time you file it and you're the practitioner of record. You the limited a limited appearance does not enable you to accept service on behalf of the respondent. You cannot view the record of proceeding. There is no continued obligation to the court on the part of the practitioner. The duty is actually on the pro se respondent to file the E6061 because the question I had and still have is, okay, what if I help somebody with an asylum application or a motion and they're going to go file it tomorrow? or later on, and I just give them everything. And then for whatever reason, they don't file 
the E60 or the E61 with the court, with everything else, um, you know, in theory, I mean, supposedly because you, you could be open up to discipline because I don't, that's how I interpret, you know, I mean, I guess they, they probably wouldn't be too hard if you were like, I gave it to them. I mean, maybe just like definitely keep copies of this stuff. Um, perhaps, uh, for a period of time, but you know, the reg says that the duty is on the pro se respondent to file it. And so if they just don't, then it's not on you. Um, that to me, like begs the question of how would the court know, but, uh, the court will know if you abide by the other rules, this, um, this institutes, because you still have to complete, this does not replace completing the preparer section on any applications where there is a preparer section. So in theory, if the court, I guess, you know, I don't have any answer, you know, I, I have not posed this question to the court or EYR, but um, if you, if they see that you're a practitioner and you filled out the preparer section, yet you have not filed this E61, I guess maybe that would trigger something for the court, but in reality, would that, are they really going to be paying attention to that? Uh, I do not know. This is a TBD. Um, and where there is no prepare section, pr practitioners have to place their name and signature on any documents that they help prepare. So any motion, um, any, you know, the, for example, the change of address form that doesn't have a preparer section, but practitioners still must place their name and signature on any document that they help prepare. They don't have any specific format for that. They just say, place your name and signature. They don't even require you to put your bar number or anything. It just says name and signature. <coughs> okay. Okay. So um, now was when, if there's other questions about the specifics of the rule, what it says, what the obligations are we have more discussion questions that are kind of get to some of the less definite implications of this rule but if there's any, that we'll go to and i hope everyone will engage in the in the chat um but are there other questions about the rule itself at this time Or, of course, anything, Stephanie or Maggie, that you um, care to throw in? Yeah, if any, I know that we don't have access to audio for the participants, um, but if anyone has had any experiences, positive or negative, with these forms and with this new rule um, and trying to file documents, um, we would be interested in hearing from you in the chat. We're also trying to collect information because this is all new to everyone. Yes, the more you share, the more it will be helpful to the whole, whole community. Um, but I will say that in a meeting, um, I had with EUIR a few weeks ago, um, they stated that they were surprised, like the UIR and Ashley were surprised that they have not received more of these yet. 
Um, me, I'm not surprised personally, <laughs> but, um, do you think, I mean, did they say anything to indicate why they think they haven't received more? I mean, I guess there could be a number of factors, right? Maybe people are doing less pro se filings now, or maybe they're just not filling out the form and, you know, chancing that they won't detect that, or I don't know. Like, Yeah, they didn't have any, uh, they seemed, you know, like baffled. So, um, but yeah, I think there's a, a, a number of possible hypotheses um yeah i think it could be one we're also trying to figure this out and for many practitioners this pro se assistance is would be additional something that they're not already engaging in and so it'd be something that they'd have to take on affirmatively and probably folks are waiting and seeing maybe to to understand this rule a little bit more um before kind of incorporating that into your practice um or yeah it could be people just blowing it off because they see it as just arduous unnecessary paperwork um or it could be people yeah changing their practice having you know, shifting their work to non-practitioners where possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it could definitely have the impact of people being more hesitant to engage in this type of assistance. Um, but there's no other specific questions about the rule. We can move into the discussion. And uh, I'll turn it over to Stephanie and Maggie, and I'll jump in as a panelist on my thoughts, and I will manage the slide deck. Thank you, Liz. That was really great, very informative um, as we try to get a handle on this. So I think Stephanie and I are just going to go through some of the main questions that we have right now and, and maybe that, you know, other people have as well in hopes of, you know, getting some insights from the group or, you know, also sharing our own uh, experiences or concerns or speculations about what some of the issues are going to be moving forward. Um, so the first uh, discussion question was, you know, how can we best use this limited uh, rep to provide valuable and efficient access to services for respondents. And so we have two different sectors here, um, private, you know, practitioners and legal services providers. Obviously, that's a very like superficial uh, divide. Um, but we kind of wanted to, you know, acknowledge that there's a lot of different practice models that um, may be looking into um, utilizing or, or expanding their pro se practice. And so I think why don't, um, Stephanie, why don't you kind of take on the private practitioners? What are some of the, um, you know, opportunities provided, in your opinion, by um, this new rule to, you know, improve services? And anyone else, please jump in in the chat as well. Yes, please. Anyone who has anything to add, please feel free. I'm, we wanted this to be more of a brown bag discussion. And, and so this is how, how we're doing it. 
Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Stephanie Bonilla. I am a private practitioner. I have my office, SB Law in Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, and I will be completely honest with the group and say that I struggle with this rule a, a little bit. Um, and I can't speak for the group. I'll speak for myself. So I struggle with it because I am very aware that a lot of the consultations I have, a lot of people that are coming through my doors won't don't have the means or don't have the the bandwidth to really hire a private attorney for their case. And unfortunately, and I could be wrong, but based on what I'm hearing from different legal services, most legal services seem to be at capacity or not taking that many cases right now, which means that there's like an influx of a lot of people coming that don't have the means to hire a private attorney. Um, so how to use this, this rule to provide the most valuable and efficient access? Um, Honestly, I'm open to ideas. Part of me is thinking like doing limited rep for people who need an emergency change of venue, right? Because even though a lot of organizations already create those like change of venues that you kind of just finish out filling it out if you're pro se to send it in. Um, a lot of the people that I talk to are very nervous about filling out that forum, aren't sure where to mail it, who to mail it um, to, who to serve for DHS. Um, I struggle with thinking about just giving it back and having it, giving it back to the client for them to mail because technically they have to mail the court and DHS. And I think that that can get confusing, um, sometimes, but the whole, the, the kind of open access to representation that this rule is supposed to create in private practice, I struggle to see how to do that in a way that's ethical and in a way that is is honest, right? Because I can't imagine myself doing a change of venue for someone and then the client comes, like the client is gonna assume that I'm the attorney and it's gonna wanna come back to me every single time. I understand that we can put it in writing and we can explain it, but just human nature, right? If someone helps you with your case, you wanna con continue um, working with them. So in private practice, I think the reality, at least for me, when I think about limited rep, I'm thinking really about just change of venues um, urgent change of venues, maybe urgent change of address, but anything else, I, I honestly am, am nervous about the liability that it brings and the responsibility. Yeah, those are, you know, really good points. You know, one major question I think for everyone is what uh, is the best, you know, what types of you know, legal services should we provide to clients in the pro se capacity? And, you know, you mentioned, you know, emergency change of venues and, you know, in our practice at GBLS, we have done those for quite a few people over the years um, because, you know, they're often venued in Texas, their hearings coming up in a few weeks or a few months, um, or maybe sometimes one time the next day. Um, and so we, try whenever we can to jump in on those, but it, it is a question of, you know, you get a little bit unsettled when you do a change of venue and then you're just like, okay, that's it, you know, end of service, because then, you know, you have a natural inclination as an attorney to want to make sure like everything is taken care of that the person, you know, obviously like I end up calling the court and making sure they've actually received the motion and they rule on it before the court date. And then that they, you know, do everything you know, right, so that the client's uh, hearing is actually moved. And then, you know, 
that raises a question. What is our responsibility ethically and just professionally in these situations? When does the obligation stop? Like I feel with a change of venue, you kind of need to see the whole thing through until it's actually changed. But can you realistically do that? You know, when you're in a, you're, you know, a solo practitioner in a busy practice or you're, you know, overwhelmed with your full rep cases. And um, so that's, you know, this is not just private practitioners, but legal services as well. And so that's one question. And then, you know, we also um, do a lot of I-589s for people who are reaching the one-year filing deadline, but that raises a lot of issues too, which I think we'll probably get to some of those as well. But, you know, what's the extent of your representation? If you file a skeletal application, is that, you know, ideal in the situation? If you write more, aren't you kind of obligating yourself to make sure that, you know, once you, the more detail you put, the kind of the more tied down the client is. So there's a lot of issues like that as well. And I, I think I see someone um, in the chat, uh, Karen said, you know, as, as a legal services person, it makes me nervous to jump in emergency deadline cases. We can only provide help for Massachusetts residents uh, with immigration court in Massachusetts. What if you do a change of venue, it's not approved, and then we are mistakenly listed as attorney on record. Clients can barely remember my name, never mind remembering what has been done or not on their behalf. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, really good points. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts of uh, you share that, you know, belief or have any other Attorney thoughts? Bobadilla, preach girl. I think that that is <laughs> all the panelists here have been going back and forth on that. Um, if I may share, like we are all very nervous about like how, how to handle this correctly. And honestly, like how to do it in a way that, that, keeps everyone protected and informed because